Thank you, choir. Would you please open your pew Bible or Bible you brought with you to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have your own Bible, the pew Bible, I believe it's found on page 917, Acts chapter 9. We're concluding our mini-series, On the Road, Sacred Encounters with the Living Christ. Next Sunday, we will start a new mini-series as well called Jesus Heals, looking at each of the four Gospels of hands-on healing, Jesus' healing touch. So that's fitting, choir. Thank you. This morning, in our final message, On the Road, we will look at the road to Damascus and the conversion of Paul found here in Acts chapter 9. Paul recounts his conversion experience in a number of places in Scripture, and in the book of Acts, he recounts it in chapter 22 and chapter 26. So what I've done is constructed a composite of all three accounts, with chapter 9 being our primary source material. And what Pastor Andy and I have done is we've We've given you an outline these past number of weeks. Uh, You'll find that in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along by taking notes. I'd like us to think about three lines of thought. Paul terrorizing, Paul arrested, and Paul born again. Saul the Pharisee from Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, saw this new offshoot of devotees to what was known as the way. Greek uh, word is hodos, which means the way or the road, the path to salvation, the road being appropriate for our sermon series, later to be known as Christianity. He, he saw this, this sect as a threat to his religion and to his nation. And so he attacked it with tremendous force until his own sacred encounter with the living Christ, knocked him down and converted him. So let's read together from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Let's look at the conversion of Paul. What does it say? And then the application, three points of application. What does it mean for our lives today? Listen now to God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But he answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, calling Paul a persecutor of Christians doesn't fully convey how terrifying he must have, have, must have seen to all the people. In his own words, in Acts chapter 22, he says that he had people beaten and imprisoned, that he approved a murder. And here in verse 1, Dr. Luke records that Paul breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was terrorizing Christians. Most of them converted Jews at this point. He was having them bound and dragged into jail and dragged hopefully back to Jerusalem for further punishment. So we're talking about extreme violence in the name of radical religious fundamentalism. Can we relate to our common understanding today. Now, after the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, in Acts chapter 8, we see that the church is scattered, that there is a persecution, the church is scattered, and as Pastor Andy noted last week, Philip goes and he meets the Ethiopian on the road to Gaza, so that scattering was actually designed in part by the Lord to send the word out to all the corners of the earth. And here in Acts chapter 9, it records that Paul essentially decided to take a show on the road and to hunt people down by going as far north as Damascus, about 150 miles north. Why did he do it? Was he crazy? What was he thinking? Well, he thought that he was doing the will of God, but he had murder on his mind. He must have thought that these Bizarre, blasphemous Jews believing in Messiah who's already come, who's been crucified on a cursed tree. It would have been utterly offensive to this austere Pharisee. They should all be round up and punished as far as he was concerned. Then suddenly, he says later that it happened about midday, shock and awe. He's dazed and blinded by a dazzling light that comes from the sky. Knocked down, whacked like by a two-by-four, he falls to the ground and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul recounts this sacred encounter a number of times. In Acts chapter 26, he says that Jesus says to him, why are you fighting against me? 
And then in Galatians chapter 1, he writes of his former life, he writes, quote, that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And how he was, quote, extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But then he adds, quote, God set me apart before I was born, called me by grace, pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Can you imagine Paul going one way, knocked down, and suddenly he sees the risen Lord Jesus, and everything changes. Paul the arrester himself is now arrested by God. As clearly as you can hear my voice, Paul and those accompanying him could hear Jesus, but none could see him except for Paul. In his own words, he he writes later that he saw him and and that it says um, that these words stuck in his mind. And so they're recorded here and again later in his testimony. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that very moment... The reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was imprinted upon his heart and upon his mind. Now, he's going to have a few days to think about it, isn't he? The text says that he was struck blind, taken to a house. We can imagine him lying there, flat on his back, nothing to eat or drink for three days, all by himself, alone with his thoughts. It's also interesting to note that that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now, on this side of it, we understand as as believers, but imagine what it must have been for him processing these words. When he was terrorizing Christians and approving of what they did to Stephen, he must have thought, well, this is just some weird group of people that I need to deal with. But Jesus said, Saul, in you persecuting them, you are persecuting mean. And now he begins to realize what he's done. In terrorizing the disciples, he's actually persecuting Christ, the Messiah himself. Because the Christian church is in union with Christ, and Christ is in union with the followers of the way. He had murder on his mind, but God arrested his heart. God reached him. And so that's a good encouragement for us, that God the Holy Spirit can step into any situation. God the Holy Spirit can step into any person's life, any family structure, and do a great work of conversion and regeneration. And it might be a soft touch, a gentle touch, or it might be smacking someone upside the back of their head to get their attention. But God will do what he needs to do to reach a person with grace and power, even someone running like a rebel here in Acts chapter 9. Paul's rendered helpless, blind, led by the hand to a house in town. All he can do is lie there and pray. God humbles him. God's taken him down from his high horse, literally, and humbles him. And at some point, he's saved. Now, at what point was he saved? The good doctor, Luke, doesn't say exactly when it happened. Did did it happen when he heard the voice from heaven and saw Jesus? Was it when he 
was blind? Was it when he was praying and saw a vision of of a man coming to, to touch him? Was it when Ananias came and laid hands on him and healed him of his blindness and the scales fell off? And the Holy Spirit came in? Was it when he was baptized? We don't know. But as far as Luke is concerned here, he just wants to tell us of an account of a sacred encounter of a one-time terrorist becoming the most important apostle in the history of the church. Of course, Saul did not get there all on his own, did he? Think about all the award shows that you watch, and, and someone gets up there, and they get their prize, and they say, well, I couldn't be here without all the little people, right? So now it is. Well, Saul has a, has a much more humble approach when he, when he relays those that, that impacted his life. And so we meet Ananias. There's a man named Judas as well who owns the house, a saint there in Damascus. But, but, and, then, and then, of course, following verse 19, it talks about uh, other believers there that, that took care of Paul. But let's look at Ananias. What an extraordinary saint. Paul will later write a very humble and encouraging uh, epitaph for him in, in Acts chapter 22. He says, he was a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. That's a nice encouragement. A well-respected man. A decent man. A core value here at Nielsville, a core value that I love to see, something that we greatly value in this church is being a compassionate people and being good citizens, willing to help anybody in need. Now look at Ananias. He exceeds our core value to the nth degree. What an amazing act of faith. And and I was trying to see how how could we relate to this. And and the only thing I could come up with was an illustration. Uh, uh, Imagine June 2nd. We, We dedicate... Uh, the, the building and all the new things that have happened and all this investment that you've made into the, the church and we have great plans of, of outreach and growth of the church and, and then that very night an arsonist comes and burns down the whole church. Uh, and some of our trustees are, are, are getting a little <clears throat> scratchy throat but just, just go with me for a moment. The news crews from around the country come Anderson Cooper is taking requests for, for interviews. Chef is out there. They're all out there. Who did it? What happened? And then we learn that there was an arrest, an arsonist who burned down the entire church. And that this arsonist was arrested and is now at Shady Grove Hospital. And you are gathered someplace. Maybe we're huddled together at, at the elementary school or, or the middle school. We're having a prayer service just to make sense of what's happened. And the Lord lays on your heart, I want you to go to Shady Grove and to pray for this arsonist. Can you imagine? What would you you say if the Lord laid that on your heart? And Ananias says, Lord, are are we sure we're talking about the same person? This is someone who is trying to kill people who are following you. He's afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? Absolutely. But then the Lord says and commands, go. He is a chosen instrument of mine. And he goes. 
It's one thing to value being a compassionate person, to being a good citizen, but the first words out of this man's mouth to a terrorist is brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that not also a miracle? This conversion, like all conversions, was a work of sovereign grace. God moved in on Paul's life as he had planned long before. And right from the start, there are signs of genuine conversion. He's praying. It says that he was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sin, that he's united to Christ, that he's been adopted into the family of God, that he's given the certainty of his his resurrected life to come. And then following, at the end of the passage and following, it says that he ate and was strengthened. And then you can read on verse 20 that for several days he was with the disciples who were there in Damascus. And so there are genuine signs of being received into the Christian community of the way. But there's still much work to be done in this man's life, isn't there? Much work. And notice one more thing, verse 2. It says he was headed to Damascus to see if he could find any who belonged to the way. They're not called Christians yet. That doesn't happen until Antioch. He wants to find those who are on the way. And now Saul is on the way too. Now what does this have to do with our life today? Three points of application. Number one, nobody is too far to be saved by Jesus. Nobody is too far to be saved by Jesus. We looked at Saul's persecution of the church, and the thought rings in our minds, he must be insane, he must be crazy. But then at the end of Paul's life, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is sharing his testimony, and Festus, the governor of Rome, hears his testimony. You know what he says? Paul, you must be crazy. No matter what, he's crazy on either end. That's why God said, Paul, I have appointed you to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Friends, we may not suffer the way Paul did, but believe me, if you're living for Jesus, if you're on the way, someone in your life is going to say, you're crazy. You're crazy for making those kinds of commitments. But the point is this. He is the kind of person no one expects to be converted So the application is that the most unlikely people can be saved and are being saved. God's mercy and power are not limited to people who are set up for Christianity by a good family or a church or or a clean moral track record. So that means that we should not lose hope for those who show no signs of being open to giving their life to Jesus. It's a mistake to think that our prayers for others are only effective if they have immediate impact and effect that we can see to an an openness or spiritual sensitivity. Keep praying. Be diligent in prayer. Moms, be diligently praying for your children. Paul wasn't open. He wasn't interested. But God got a hold of his heart. So keep that in mind. Point number two Divine encounters are real, they are, but we can become overly fascinated by them. 
Most of us haven't had anything close to resembling the kinds of sacred encounters that we've looked at these past three weeks. The roads we travel on don't look like the road to Emmaus or the road to Gaza or even the road to Damascus. And so we look at these accounts and, and some of us, I wonder, have grown bored with the life that God's called us to. We think to ourselves, well, well, I want a sacred encounter. I want experiences like these. Friends, if that's you, listen, Christ calls us to a life of love, not a life of experiences. And a life of love, for the most part, means attending to the boring details of others' lives, serving others in sacrificial ways that aren't always exciting. I want to get... I want to get pumped up on Sundays. I, it, it's got to be more exciting. That's not the life that Jesus calls us to. It means going about your daily life, relying on Christ, honoring Christ in all of the workaday duties before you. Some of us are tempted to wonder, isn't there more to the abundant Christian life? I mean, shouldn't my life be more adventurous if, if God's in my life and, and around me at all times? How am I going to be able to be all that I hope to be without some supernatural encounter, some arresting moment? Am I just supposed to keep on keeping on? i just die if I had to do that. Yes, you would. Jesus called it dying to self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man... He bid him come and die. Christian love is denying yourself of the glory of experience, of being caught up. The cost of our discipleship for most of us is a simple life. It's simply to live the life that God has given to us, serving in ordinary ways the people that he's put on the road in front of you. To be free from the self and to discover such love is the essence of the abundant life. So yes, sacred encounters do happen, as do extraordinary acts of courage and compassion. But for most of us, most of the time, we're not running into a burning house. We're simply acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Because it's Jesus who paid for our sins on the cursed cross. That you might live for him. We were rebels. We were against him. But he loved us. With this in mind, think about our core value of being compassionate, helpful people. And think about it in a whole new perspective. Think about Ananias. Think about the people that God has put in your life. Who are the people in your life that are hardest to love? Who are the people furthest from what you deem to be respectable, relatable, lovable in your life? These are the very people that Jesus commands you to love today. Finally, point number three. The divine sovereign purpose of God's grace relates to your life here and now. In Timothy 1.1, Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. 
but I receive mercy that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were, being, who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God had you in mind when he saved Paul. That is an awesome thought. God saved Paul in this way so that you and I would be amazed by grace and mercy and perfect patience. And so that you and I would take courage for our own salvation and for the salvation of others. God is very gentle with young Christians, just as a mother is gentle with a baby. Often the start on the way is marked by great joy, remarkable answers to prayer, immediate fruitfulness. God does this to encourage the young believer to establish them in the life. But as you grow mature in your walk with Christ, as you grow stronger and are able to bear more, God exercises your faith, exposes you to test, to build your character, to strengthen your faith so as to prepare you to serve others. In this way, God glorifies himself in our lives. He makes his strength perfect in our weakness. Does that sound familiar? That's Paul, later in life, making sense of it all. And so if you're looking for a life that's free of trouble, a nice, smooth, perfectly level pavement, you're not on the right road. It would be strange not to have bumpiness and hardship and even some potholes along the way. But take heart. It's for his glory and for your ultimate good. Let's pray. Well, God, we do want to take heart. Lord, we want to pray right now for those in our lives that we think are so far from you that you would arrest their hearts and draw them in by amazing grace. Lord, for any here who say, I want more. Sunday should be more exciting. Monday should be more exciting. Where is the encounter? Where is the experience? Remind us, Lord, in our everyday life, we have opportunity to be your witness and to commune with you and to be ever in your presence. And God, may we be reminded in the hardships and bumpiness of life that you are working all of it, orchestrating it for our good and for your glory. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Please open your hymnals to hymn number 280. You don't need the hymnal if you know this one. Amazing grace. Let's stand and sing to our Lord. Amazing grace. Amazing grace.